Oh my good goodness gracious me, it is time for another episode of The Score, your favorite podcast. Yay! Welcome back, everyone. Um, this is the podcast where we talk about pop culture and classical music and opera from the perspective of three queer Black administrators. As always, I am your host, Rocky Jones, and I am joined by my two fabulous co-hosts. First, we have the luminous, the loquacious, the luxurious <laughs> Lee Bynum. Hello, Lee. How are you? I love that alliterative introduction. Why, well, you know, you. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on in the Big Apple? Oh, a, a little of this, a little of that. I don't think I had mentioned it because I haven't seen y'all in a couple of days. A, a very funny thing happened last week where my brother and my sister-in-law pushed that baby out. Oh so, my gosh! I know, it's crazy, right? Thank you. I am now whatever the non-gendered version of a aunt or uncle is. I, I think that is where we are moving. Not sure what the word is for it, but maybe I'll make one up or maybe you should make one up. You, you've you been on a roll lately. Hmm. So Let yeah, super it. excited. Yeah. He's super cute. Um, hmm. You know, he's doing fun things like opening and closing his eyes and flailing his arms, not doing too much else. But I have noticed that my mother has stopped taking my calls. I think she is completely <laughs> distracted by this new little human. And I understand why, you know, I'm old news. So. Yeah, she is busy. <laughs> she really is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. That's awesome. Which Thank and that you. also reminds me that um I have a new little niece and a new little nephew as well. What? You yes. copied that. I know, I know. But shout out to little Gino and little Vivian. Aww. <laughs> and of course, we cannot, we would be remiss if we did not introduce our second co-host, the uh, the Poppin and uh, Pulchritudinous <laughs> and uh, occasionally pugnacious Paige Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> what up, <laughs> I'm oh god I'm a mess I'm so sorry hi Paige <laughs> that's okay oh. I like it I like it I might I might have to remember that one <laughs> and how are you you were down in the big easy I sure am I sure am oh. down here in NOLA, you know, at the other end of the Mississippi. From- <laughs> <laughs> you are so lucky. It is supposed to snow four to seven inches tonight. So are you serious? Stay in New Orleans Listen. forever. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not trying to leave, and you just gave me another reason. <laughs> but before we we before you signed on, Lee, we were we were chatting, and um, Paige was in the car, and there was crawfish a crawfish boil, two fifty a pound outside the Winn Dixie, and I was like, <laughs> "You need to go get you some of that." <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? Good food is so abundant. I didn't yeah. see that. I literally just went across the street 
to the soul food spot where I got some smothered okra and shrimp. Mm. So, so mm. it's it's just everywhere. I couldn't even <laughs> special was like beans and rice with you know smoked sausage, of course, mm. fried catfish, fried shrimp. I forgot what shrimp is really supposed to taste like. <laughs> <laughs> there are few things on earth like better than Cajun food. My God. Yeah. Now I want some. I had broiled oysters yesterday. Oh my God. Ooh. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, there anything special that brought you down to NOLA? You know, there is something special actually, mm -hmm. but uh mm -hmm. it'll it's gonna be a surprise. It's gonna oh. be a surprise. Okay. What actually brought me here. I can't I can't tell the audience yet. Okay. Oh, okay. But you know, right. while I was here for said special thing, you know, I got to enjoy myself and see some music. We went out on Frenchman Street for music two nights in a row. So that was really great. And just like it's nice to be in a city where, you know, musicians can make a living playing live music um, and where you could just walk into any spot and find someone who is exceptional, just absolutely exceptional. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we were, we were jamming and, you know, it's a lot of the time it'll be a cover band, you know, it's not even like they're mm -hmm. doing it their own original work and it is just one of the most amazing things you've ever heard like i heard the most awesome cover of redemption song that i've mm. ever heard um sis opened up with the shaka khan song <laughs> night, i was like oh you have vocal confidence <laughs> i mean <laughs> that's a singer you opened up with shaka it was, uh, it was so good it was so good so i got my life <laughs> I'm so jealous. One of my more favorite moments at Minnesota Opera was chatting with Samuel one day about um, the idea of New Orleans as like the cradle of Black American music and how much yeah. amazing mm -hmm. Black music comes out of that city. Um, yeah, I'm super jealous. I'd love to be there. It's also cold and dreary here. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of Minnesota Opera, you were just here. I got to give you a hug last I weekend. I know. We did a little, <laughs> a little uh, you know, pop-up uh, visit. We went to see the song Poet, which was absolutely lovely. It's a okay. really, really beautiful piece. I would expect nothing less from Kalia and uh, very talented Jocelyn Hagen. Mm -hmm. And the cast was great. Um, I went on the community night performance so you know it was Damien and me and our two friends who are originally from Sri Lanka and then literally everybody else in the audience um, was a person of Hmong descent and it was really great to see yes. the show in that context mm -hmm. after you know having a little bit of food seeing a little bit of fashion it was a wonderful night of culture deeply affecting piece really talented cast some nice dancers and I also got to see somebody playing the harp, which is randomly one of my favorite things. I'd love to <laughs> play the harp because it doesn't even look like they're making music. It just looks like they're moving their fingers in this really beautiful way. 
Um, so yeah, it was great. Um, we had some very good food. I had some bison while I was oh, there. Okay. I know, right? Doesn't even sound Where like it. Where did you have bison? At the Hewing Hotel. Oh, okay. Where we stayed. It was very, very pretty. I highly recommend it. Priced reasonably and in the middle of everything in the North Loop metropolis. <laughs> 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 so it was a good it was a good weekend. It was good to see everybody. I, I think I saw almost everybody from our team, except for Jared. I, I think mm -hmm. I managed to see every other person and it was good, even though I've only been gone like six weeks. I was like, oh my God, I miss you. I miss you. I miss you. I miss you. So yeah. Wow. Has it, has it only been six weeks? It honestly it could guess, have been 12. I, I guess, I, I, I guess it feels longer when you're counting the seconds. <laughs> 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 love, love, it's all love. It's all love. <laughs> Look, and we are still in a time pandemic vacuum. I never know what day it is. Right. How many days have passed. So yeah, for all I know, I've been gone for five years. But either way, it was <laughs> it was great to be back in and see everybody. So well, we miss you, of course. Oh, and I miss y'all too, and I absolutely mean it this time. <laughs> I believe you, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, today is uh, Friday, March 31st, when we are recording this. And first and foremost, it is Trans Day of Visibility. So I yes. just want to say happy Trans Day of Visibility to you, Iawo, and everyone else out there um, who is celebrating. Um, and I know that we have sermonized the last couple of weeks about <laughs> all of the horrible things that are happening in state legislatures around the country but today is a day of celebration and we just want to celebrate all of y'all out there um, but also um, this is being released next Wednesday so I don't know what's 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 going to happen um, in New York City but it's it's also at least for me not to brag. Uh, <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> but it's also a day of celebration because that man got indicted. <laughs> so I'm just going to say that. <laughs> yep. Yep. The orange one. The orange one. It really, you know, really be challenging me as an abolitionist. I must say. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few people it goes like you know donald trump uh r kelly tory lanes um Pamela, where art thou man yeah what a world <laughs> you know i I do not, despite the fact of being married to a German, I do not typically engage in schadenfreude because I feel like it is not how I was raised. But I will say this, last night on Twitter, the memes were memeing. Yes, they People were. were having a <laughs> gay old time. And, you know, I, it was hard not to be here for some of it just because the last, oh God, what, six years? How long has he been? in our you know orbit as a political 50 years since 1973 when he was 
too too racist for the Nixon Department of Justice. (laughs) 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 Well, it you know, I I I grew up in a household where we talked about um, consequences a lot, right? The consequences of your behavior, good or bad, but consequences are a real thing. And it's they're an important thing, right? Because I feel like they they keep us participating in society and and they're important for everyone to be able to experience some semblance of the same consequences because that is how a social contract works and the fact that he has been sort of flaunting that he can do whatever you know right in front of us you know russia if you're listening you know like all of Mm -hmm. those kinds of nonsense behaviors that he's been up to it was a relief to know that at some point it was going to catch up with him, right? And when Yusuf Salam of the Central Park Five or the Exonerated Five, as, as they now call themselves, simply tweeted out karma, right? Like it, it felt right because mm-hmm. I can remember when Trump was paying for full page ads in the New York Times calling for the execution of the Central Park Five before they were convicted, right? Mm. And I think we all remember, you know, lock her up. I, I still don't know for what, right? So it, it's it's just kind of an, an interesting moment that I think can be a reminder to everybody that you we don't live in a universe where you can do whatever you want to, to whomever you want to, for perpetuity at, at some point it will catch up with you mm-hmm. um so yeah and for the charges to be what the charges are because there have been a lot of things that have happened in the last couple of years right i mean just going back to the first or second impeachment like there are lots of things that these charges could have been about and for them to be hush money to Miss Daniels. Like, I, I think that there's also something that feels like cosmic retribution on a very large scale, because I, I frequently feel like um, how you find someone is how you'll leave them, mm-hmm. right? And the thing that'll take you down will be the thing that is so characteristic of your personality. So it might not be the biggest, worst thing you've ever done, but it's probably the thing that you do that just reflects the kind of human you are. Um, so I'm going to dismount my soapbox for just a few minutes. Um, but I, I will say it, it it felt good. I've never been able to let go of the, you know, hey, your grandparents are from a shithole country moment. Like I've just never been able Ooh, to- Oh, we're gonna have to bleep that. We, do we? <laughs> <laughs> well, bleep it if you need to, because I'm still mad about it. And I will, I'll probably stay mad about that one. That didn't No, and, and rightly so, 100%. Didn't feel good in the moment. So. It really didn't. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It really didn't. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, but that's, I just gonna throw that out there because that is the news and we might need to cut this out if new york city is on (laughs) on fire next week or something (laughs) but like i mean how could we not it's it's history happening unfolding right before our eyes right before Um, our eyes man and let's be clear i do i i I do expect some 
folks somewhere to absolutely act a donkey over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a matter of the scale, you yeah. know, what mm -hmm. we're talking yeah. about here. So we'll we'll see. We'll see we'll what see. happens. We'll see yeah. what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But um <laughs> I was in a restaurant last night, um, right after the the news came out, and I heard the table behind me. And it sounded like they were three supporters of his and talking about how like the Democrats are just going to go crazy. And I was just like, I don't, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't really think that that's sort of the progressive style. <laughs> yeah, historically. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you got to tell yourself. But <laughs> yeah, you got to stop eating that Cracker Barrel. Like, I I think that you have to start finding some new restaurants. I was not eating a Cracker Barrel. How dare you? Oh, no, those hash browns. Those racist hash browns. Oh, no, I shouldn't say that. We, um, if Cracker Barrel is sponsoring the show. <laughs> I used to wait tables at Cracker Barrel. Did you? Um, I, I sure did. And A, I'm not good at waiting tables. The whole idea of people telling me what to do is It like doesn't seem like a job that would suit you. I, I was terrible, terrible <laughs> at it. Because my response to things was very frequently, well, I, why are you telling me this, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> can't you figure out how to find a fork? But um, the, the hash browns were right. I, I will mean, have to give you that. Good Lord. But anyway, <laughs> on with this show. Today we have a very exciting special guest, um, a veteran of the classical music, music industry. We have maestro William Henry Curry on to talk to us about conducting and being a Black conductor coming up um, through and his, his long, illustrious career. We're so honored and excited to have him on the show today. So stay right or stay tuned, and uh, we'll be right back with Maestro William Henry Curry. And we are back, everybody. We are very, very excited to have a wonderful guest with us today. Maestro William Henry Curry was the first African-American to hold a music director position with an American orchestra in the South. His artistic journey started with the study of the viola at age 11, and he quickly moved to conducting at age 14 under Eugene Reichenfeld in Pittsburgh. He attended Oberlin Conservatory studying viola and conducting before leaving to become assistant conductor of the Richmond Symphony at age 22. He embarked on an international career conducting the Chicago, Cleveland, Houston, National, Detroit, Denver, American, Chicago, and San Diego symphonies, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the Israel Camerata Jerusalem Orchestra. He traveled to Thailand and Taiwan on behalf of the U.S. State Department to conduct and give workshops on American music. He was the resident conductor of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and the North Carolina Symphony and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. He was unanimous winner of the 1988 Leopold Sikowski Conducting Competition at Carnegie Hall. He was also nominated for a Grammy for his conducting of Anthony Davis's opera X, 
The Life and Times of Malcolm X in 1992. As a composer, his works have been described as tonal, melodic, neo-romantic, and populist, and have been premiered by the Indianapolis and North Carolina symphonies, including Eulogy for a Dream and Dark Testament. He has been honored by the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission and received the City of Riley Medal of the Arts for his achievements in advancing the arts in the state. His forthcoming memoirs entitled Maestro will be published by Indiana University Press in 2023. Thank you again for being here. Wow. Thank you so much. Looking forward to our remarks. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you really have a, a really fascinating and exciting bio. And I think anybody like me who's sort of interested in the history of African Americans in classical music, I, I think, you know, you have so, so much to share. And I kind of just want to jump right into something you and I had the opportunity to talk about a few weeks ago, if you'd be willing to share a little bit about the ways that you're racial identity has shaped your career in classical music. I was born one month after Brown versus Board of Education. That means that every Black parent then must have looked at their new child and said, maybe this one will be allowed to join the inner circle. So my mother was the dominant parent in my life. And she found out when I was, I think, eight or nine, when an IQ test was given at our all-Black elementary school, that I had the highest IQ in the history of the school. This meant she was going to be on top of me about getting straight A's. You've got a good brain. Now, please use it. The first adult book she put in my hands was Dickens' Great Expectations. So it was great to have someone, in this case, my mother, pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. And I hardly needed that because I, I don't want to say that I groomed myself from grade school on to be an intellectual, but already in the second grade, my idea of a good time was to try to memorize the encyclopedia. This was an era when all kinds of firsts were happening. First black person to win an Academy Award, to be nominated, et cetera, et cetera. Like I said, I went to an all black elementary school, lower middle class background with no music at all in the home. We couldn't afford a TV until I was five. We never had a record player till I was eight. In those days, everyone in America from poor folks on up had a piano because TV was just relatively new. And so the entertainment center was piano. Everyone played a piano of some sort, by ear or whatever. So whenever we would go to my parents' friend's house, I would make a beeline to the piano and bang away and bang away and play whatever. And so people said, gee, I mean, little Billy, you should get him some music lessons. My parents could not afford a TV, let alone a piano and lessons. So finally, in sixth grade, this Jewish gentleman, Eugene Reichenfeld, found out that this black school way the heck over here in the suburbs of Pittsburgh was at best underserved. And he came to this school, gave us instruments. I played the viola. My brother played the cello. And he gave us free lessons. 
So who would have thought that from this uh, infertile soil that two classical musicians could have had careers? My brother, like I say, is a cellist, and he's been in the Cleveland Orchestra for 44 years. He also played with the New York Philharmonic and the Detroit Symphony. And you mentioned the places I've conducted. And we figured out last year that between us, we have performed in every major concert hall in the world. So where did this come from? It came from this Jewish gentleman who said, there's a spark here. So he noticed that I was inhaling music. He gave me records, free lessons. And then he, he noticed that I had some conducting skills because I started to conduct when I was 14. And he gave me a chance conducting his professional orchestra. So I was very lucky in that my viola teacher, my mentor was also a conductor because he could put me on the podium. Now these are perilous times in America. I was 14 when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I was just then realizing I wanted to be a classical musician, perhaps even a composer and conductor. We had a race riot in my high school, my junior year, and there were no black classical musicians except not even a handful. There was Leontine Price, Leonard Bernstein was bringing to the fore the young Andre Watts, and there were no black conductors at all in America for me to see as role models. Henry Lewis wasn't yet well known. Dean Dixon had a career in Europe because he could not have a career in America. This is before Calvin Simmons. So me wanting to be a conductor and to being black was, I mean, I was too like naive to think about the glass ceilings that I had eventually hit my head on. But nonetheless, what kept me going always was this incendiary passion, love, and respect for music. My teachers noticed that. So they gave me everything. You should try composing. You should try arranging. Play jazz, play baritone sax, play bass, play piano. So I was like a sponge. And I was grateful to have these opportunities to do what I loved the most. I had several annunciation moments very pretentious word for that light bulb over the head moment. Uh, one was when I was playing in an orchestra in the viola section of Wagner's D. Meistersinger Prelude. And all of a sudden I had an out of body experience. If that had happened in math class or history class on the trampoline, I mean, my life would have gone in a different direction. So these crystal moments of clarity are so important and are to be heated in a young person's life to be sure. The idea of someone born in 1954 was to assimilate. Like I said, my mom said, no doubt, maybe this one will be allowed to join the inner circle. Do I wish I had had black role models at that time to give me aid and comfort? There was William Horfield, who I later worked with. I had a recording of a version of Showboat. And this assimilationist attitude had a rather brief shelf life, particularly after 63. Because then, I don't want to say this is the correct term for it, but the Afrocentric movement had to happen. We had to embrace our past. We had to embrace our heritage. We had to embrace our color because we had been degraded 
in this country. There's no other word for it. I mean, think of it. Loving versus Virginia, 1968, I think it was. Until then, it was illegal for a black person to marry a white person in many states. That's the environment I grew up in and mercifully oblivious to what kind of problems there'd be going forward. So that gives you an idea of the turbulent era I grew up in. So long story short, for me to be a simulationist and to be joining the opera world, the symphony world, all of a sudden to my black friends, that was not cool anymore. You a sellout. What's wrong with you? You ashamed of your people? So I've been very often in my life a man without a country simply because I loved classical music, the center of my life. Wow. Well, you talk about that passion, Maestro, that sort of that fire. And I'm wondering what exactly, because I think we, the three of us, share that passion as well. And, you know, a lot of our listeners share that passion. And I'm I'm curious in hearing you talk about it, what, what do you think it is that, you know, when you were sitting there and you picked up the viola for the first time and it, it sort of clicked, um, you know, what, what was that? And what is it that keeps that fire stoked in you for classical? The first enunciation moment I had, you know, when you start playing an instrument, let's face it, it's not fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, the viola, you know, if you got the bow, if you got the fingering and playing piano, think of that. What? <laughs> so what? If you stick with it, about a year later, maybe two years later in my case, you begin to be comfortable with it. And then all of a sudden I realized what someone should have told me in the first place. The reason why you're playing this instrument is that in the future, you will be able to express your feelings through these tones. I had to learn that on my own. And one day I was playing well enough that I could say things that didn't have words. I, I, I could express things. I was an extremely, maybe it's hard to believe, I was an extremely introverted, isolated <laughs> kid. You couldn't get one word out of me. My parents were petrified. But on these instruments, I became articulate. So feelings, that to me, you know, they say there's a connection between math and music. I hate math. I always hated math. For me, it's all about emotion, passion, and feelings. And I found my my credos. I found my home, my spiritual home. When I said, oh, my gosh, I can say these things. That's beautiful. Yes, that's so beautiful. And I... I, I had a similar feeling when I did like choir in, in high school and I I loved reading growing up. And so I think I had a moment of realizing like, ooh, this music is giving me like the feeling that like a really good story gives me that I can't explain, that I just cannot put words to. But now I'm finally like, ah, it's reproduced here. Yes, I love the way you explained that. Uh, something we've talked about on this show to, to switch gears a little bit um I think in in different ways we've talked about a lot of folks on this show maestro who have had to be first in in their spaces we've talked about it uh you know in terms of singers and uh we've talked about different uh especially in recent news different arts administrators who are who are taking up space at, at companies now and since 
I know you've had a long career of often being the first in spaces. Can you can you just talk about what that is, what that is like and and just what what comes what comes with that to to kind of be the one to to break some of those glass ceilings? Well, thank you for that question, Paige. I'm of a generation where we are all told black kids, as you might be allowed to join the inner circle, we want you to be a credit to your race. I don't know that black children hear that anymore because there've been so many firsts, seconds, thirds, and fourths, still some firsts to come. But the idea was, hey, look, you're going to get a chance. Your parents, your grandparents didn't have a chance at all. So you must bring us honor by doing the best you can. And so that is a double-edged sword because you become energized with fervor about, yes, I, I've been put in this corner where I can get out of this space. I, I can leave this space because of my brain and my gift. On the other hand, at some point you say, why do I have to be, as my parents said, in order for you to make it, now mind you, let's remember my era, born in 54, trying to become a conductor in the middle 70s in professional scenes, uh, you've got to be a credit to your race and you've got to be, here it comes, twice as good as the white competitors. Now to certain people that are listening now of a certain generation or attitude, this sounds like the Negro Grievance Committee and that couldn't have been the case. You know, look, I'm one reason why I'm writing my memoirs is that there are a lot of people that don't remember that you couldn't marry outside of your own race. You couldn't live where you wanted to. So I'm just not a mathematical equation or someone on the news. I'm a living person that ran into terrible difficulties. Being first was a burden. Sometimes it was a blessing. And what kept me from losing my mind was always going back to what is it I love most about life? The greatest music, which also included, because Leonard Bernstein was a great role model for me, which also included pop, jazz, Motown, rock, the Beatles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is what has kept me afloat and, and given me a life where I didn't have to you know, work with my hands in a, in a factory. That's huge. That is so, that's huge too for that generation. Cause like, oh my, wait, everybody I know worked in a, worked in a factory. Yeah. And had, had another, yeah. And definitely had other stuff that they would, they would rather do. But like, that's something that's lost on our generation. I think for sure the, the twice as good thing. We definitely, I, I know I had to, I'd heard it growing up. Definitely. Whatever I, I had to do, I, I had to be excellent at it. Like, you can do what you want to do, but you have to be excellent at it, period. But that whole like certain jobs being <laughs> being the ones that you like being restricted to that, I don't think we we quite understand that. So I appreciate that you're writing, that you're writing about your life. And one thing that I'm sure happens to us all of us is that sometimes you feel resentful. Why, why can't I just be as good? <laughs> it's exhausting yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exhausting uh, but it makes you excel or it can break you yeah, and it can yeah. make you very very bitter about the the burden 
of in certain areas and certain circumstances of being African-American. So I'm, I'm kind of curious while we're on this particular theme, because I certainly heard the needing to be twice as good thing too. And I heard it from a father who was not um, a part of the arts who actually grew up in sports and was a, a black quarterback before they became fashionable. And from what I've learned about football, they're still barely fashionable. And <laughs> in, in my own life, I feel like it's actually, if you're only twice as good as your white counterparts, that's probably enough to like get your foot in the door. But if you actually want to be seated at the table, you, you probably need to be three or four times oh. as good, right? Like I actually skating <laughs> circles around everybody around you. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Maestro, if you feel like you've seen things trending in a, in a positive or hopeful direction in the last 20 years or so, or does it feel strangely like things from the 60s and 70s are just as um, sort of static and, um, you know, unable to move forward as I fear that they may be? That is such a great question, Lee. And uh, I'll start over here on this side, and I'll get to the center. Remind me if I don't answer your question. One of my great heroes, and I need heroes, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a golden boy, rich, beautiful, had the Roosevelt name. He was destined to be president almost from the cradle and ran for vice president when he was barely young enough to run for vice president, I think 1920. And then one day, 30-ish, he wakes up and he will never walk again. Polio. How does this man come from uh, a disability that I can't imagine uh, I, I could go through? How does this man become the greatest president of the 20th century? Parsley, he was an optimist and he was a survivor and he would not give up. And when he was dying, and he knew he was dying, 1945, he wrote, I think he was too weak to deliver it, but he definitely wrote his fourth inaugural address. And it's worth reading because, you know, I'm sure there were speech writers back then, but you can smell credibility, authenticity, and realness. And this speech is short and it's from the heart. And I can recommend this speech to everyone because Lee, you're right. We have seen such progress, but we're living in this strange era of backlash where we, we thought, hey, I thought we were done with this. So Franklin Roosevelt has not yet revealed to America the circumstances of the Holocaust. He's gone through the worst war in history as the leader. He's gone through the worst depression in history as the leader, and he says in the middle of this inaugural address, the trend is always upward. Progress is part of civilization. Yes, we fall back sometimes. He's, he's a realist. We do fall back. But then we regain and move forward a bit. Did I ever think I would see a black president in my lifetime? Sort of. Did I ever think I would see gay marriage in my lifetime? To coin a phrase, hell no. So it would be wrong for me, who grew up in this racist apartheid society, 
to to not be heedful of the progress this country is capable of making. Yes, we are in a polarized time. In 1968, I was 14. This is when we had a nervous breakdown year. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. You had an illegal war in Vietnam, race riots. George Wallace, the racist candidate from Alabama, doing well running in the North. So at 14, this pretty much went over my head because you say, oh, that's what adults do. They riot in the streets and George Wallace does this. For me, I think that time was worse. I don't know what it would have been like for my parents because we never talked about it or any adult thinking, adult, what's happening here? Can we survive this? And I love the old uh, statesman journalists and thinkers like George Will, conservative, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, liberal, who say, people, me, who's only 68 compared to them, look, we've been through worse. We'll get through this. But people remind us that, hey, look, in 1942, we weren't sure we would win World War II. I mean, the Civil War was in doubt until the middle of 1864. So we can't can't give in to despair because there are more great people and thoughtful people than people that are conformist and, and, and want to vent their anger through political means. Don't know whether I answered your question, but. <laughs> I, I think that that does answer it, right? Like, you know, there isn't always a, a neat, tidy through line because these things are, are deeply experiential. But what I was hoping to get, and I definitely got a sense of that, was how you feel like you experience today what to my ears sounds a lot like um, my generation and, and Paige's generation are, are sort of clinging to some very similar sentiments that my parents generation had and you know maybe some before so thank you for that that was you know eye-opening and in in some ways hopeful and in some ways you know a little a little disheartening I think that the basic problems in this country will never entirely go away because human nature has a dark streak where you must have scapegoats. I'm not saying that we here have to have scapegoats, but that's part, an immutable, unchanging part of human nature. You don't have to worry about being a person of achievement if you can look down on somebody else. Now I feel better about myself. At least I'm not a black queer. That's what I heard growing up. And Lyndon Johnson said, and I wish this were famous, if you can make a poor white person feel that they are still better than than the most lofty educated black man, then he'll he'll let you pick his pocket. Mm, come on now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm sure we don't see any of that anymore. Yeah, no, it's the opposite. <laughs> so so I look, that's always going to be here. It will lessen. It will lessen. The only thing that could make this bubble up to the surface even more violently than it is now is an economic collapse of which we cannot even imagine the ferocity of that would make this go backwards. But I do believe the young generation truly is... It is less bigoted, prejudiced, 
and, and something that I want to make sure I mention. Female conductors. I grew up in a time where there were none. Period. Mm. Not one. So the first time I played on a woman conductor, it was when 71, summer of 71. I was at the American Symphony Orchestra League Conductors Workshop, which of course was all male. And there was a good orchestra. I was playing in it and one of the conducting students. And finally, one day, oh, who's this? There's a female approaching the podium. You could hear the man silently hissing in the orchestra. And I'm ashamed to say I wasn't exactly uh, uh, very supportive either. But once Judith Samaji started to conduct the Wagner Tannhauser Overture, by the time she got down to page one of the viola part, I said, will you please send all these male conductors home and let this woman conduct the rest of the summer? Please. So the same thing happened in American sports. Who's this? Oh, he hit it out of the park. He my man. So you know, if you can do the job, I found performers, musicians to be incredibly uh, socially progressive. And am I gratified to see the age of female conductors being so much more hopeful than that situation was even 10 years ago? So look, there, there's progress right there. Maybe you remember the name of a great American conductor, Lauren Mazel. Lauren Mazel was music director of the Pittsburgh Symphony, the New York Philharmonic. Um, he was the music director of the Vienna Opera and the Cleveland Orchestra. He's the one that hired my brother. So Mazel saw me conduct twice. And, and, and thanks be to God, he was wonderfully encouraging because we all need support from someone in our business that knows something from Shinola. That that's an old term. That's an old that's an old term. So he said, you need management. You can't make it without a manager. So I'll send you to Harold Shaw in New York. Harold Shaw was then the manager of arguably the world's greatest living pianist, Vladimir Horowitz. That shows you what status he had achieved. So I go to the, the lobby and I he makes me you know, sit there for 45 minutes. And here I am sent by Lauren Mazel, who at that time was music director of the Vienna Opera, arguably the greatest opera company in the world, and the Cleveland Orchestra, which is certainly, there's no greater orchestra in the history of the world. A pretty good imprimatur from a status person. Harold Shaw's office. Within one minute, he says, you know, I can't do anything with a black conductor. This is 1980. I hadn't given this much thought, but I'm a problem to a lot of people. Even though I'm a little bit, you know, darker than Harold Shaw. And some people have said to me, well, where was your Frederick Douglass oration that you should have flung at him? And I, I was like a deer in the headlights. Other people have said, well, did you thank him for being honest? So I don't know what I should have done. I know I decided I wasn't going to quit. Because that's the only thing I have control of. I can't have control over people's opinions of me and my race. And then, mind you, excuse me, there were no gay out conductors when I was coming up. None. Mm -hmm. Leonard Bernstein was by, got married, and everyone else was closeted, and only their small inner circle knew they were gay. But you sure as hell could not be a public figure in America 
and be out. Now, it was okay, sort of, to be out and work in academia, maybe, or at, at the supermarket, but to be the image of an arts organization. Boy, I really, I like what James Baldwin said about being black and gay. Well, I thought I hit the jackpot. It was so crazy, I had to do something with it. So you had to be, <laughs> you had to be your authentic self. So I would say to young people right now, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certain things in America that aren't, don't make me feel encouraged, but it's it'd be wrong to be discouraged. We are capable of vast improvements and I don't want Martin Luther King to live for nothing. I I think that is like very helpful, very helpful perspective and like such a balanced perspective <laughs> for us because it's, I, I, I think with my generation also because of the information that we have available at our hands, there's kind of a, I don't know, we start with um kind of less, fewer rose tinted glasses on, yeah. you know, in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so that that encourages me that is that encourages me I a, a thing I'm I'm really curious about um because you you know grew up in, in Pittsburgh and you know and, and just maintain those connections I wonder if you could talk about what Pittsburgh uh specifically has meant to you and I mean I also think about Pittsburgh because one of my favorite playwrights August Wilson (laughs) (laughs) hello the whole Pittsburgh cycle like so I mean I know just a little bit something because I had to study that but if for the rest of the audience if you could enlighten them about you know what it meant to you that specific place and and maybe even to black folks in, in in general well, August Wilson, I, I'm so sorry I didn't get a chance to meet him because my mm-hmm. parents grew up in the Hill District and Homewood where all of his plays are set. What? They could have known his family, oh you know, at some point. So so Pittsburgh, uh, like I say, my mom was a dominant parent in my life and she introduced me to Porgy and Bess when I was about 12. And again, when you when you get to be as old as I am, you're going to say, why is it I remember certain things perfectly that happened more than a half a century ago, but I can't remember what I did a year ago or yesterday? I can remember my mom sitting me down on the sofa and her playing selections from Porgy and Bess. And she told me this story. There was, it was the famous American tour of Porgy after Gershwin died, like 1944. And my mom was excited to see it in the Stanley Theater downtown Pittsburgh in the north. And she bought her ticket and was surprised that she had to sit up where they peanut heaven. The black people were segregated in a northern city to see an opera mm-hmm. with black people on the stage. Mm-hmm. So that was her generation. Pittsburgh was, let me put it this way. When Obama ran the first time, the state that was polled that said they were least likely to vote for a black person was not Alabama, it was West Virginia. West Virginia. Pittsburgh is right there with West Virginia. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about the North in that era, as Martin Luther King found out to his dismay, as James Carville, Clinton's uh, campaign manager, said of Pennsylvania, 
you have on the west, Pittsburgh, and on the right, Philadelphia, and everything in the middle is Alabama. Hmm. That's always going to be an issue in this country. I just read the other day that, yeah, it's great. Integration is a good thing. It's good to have black and gay and trans friends. I remember, and this doesn't make me look so good, but I met my first lesbian couple when I was like 23. My partner invited them in. And look, I, you know, I was, you know, I was, no, I wasn't comfortable. A gay man. But within 20 minutes, they were cool. You know, they were great. So that that was just like the ball players and performers. I mean, if you can just be with someone and censor humanity, mm -hmm. Bill Clinton said to gays in the era of don't ask, don't tell, come out of the closet, share your story. That will humanize you to them. Well, I just, this conversation and, and your optimism about us moving forward has been really, really inspiring. I think it's something that we all need to hear right now, um, just in the middle of this ongoing pandemic and all of the political divisions and racial tensions and strife um, and uprisings that are happening right now. But I want to look towards the future. We're getting towards um, our our time together. And I'm just curious, Maestro, what is, uh, I'd love to hear more about your memoirs, but what else is coming up for Maestro Curry in 2023? I realized 30 years ago, oh my gosh, that what I wanted to do even more than compose and conduct, by the way, composing is about the most difficult thing you can do in music, because as Aaron Copeland said to me, you know, as a conductor, you're going to be uh, compared to every living conductor, okay, but as a composer, you're going to be judged along with Beethoven and Mozart in the same stew, so uh, composing, very important for you, but teaching. You know, I had my midlife crisis at the midlife age of 40. And I began to think of what's important. In fact, I had a spiritual awakening in the middle of a uh, bad, bad phase of my life. Terrible. And you know what they say, you have to hit bottom sometimes before you come up. And literally, long story short, a voice came to me and said, the music is not important. The only thing that is important is helping other people. And that was something for me to hear since everything in my whole life had been music. So, so when I look at the various professions, teaching and medicine, those to me are the two God professions because it's hands-on helping people. As a conductor, you know, it's been indirect and I've made my contribution by bringing to the fore American music on every program I've done with the Durham Symphony for 13 years, there's been a one, at least one piece by an American composer. No American orchestra does that. So I made it a contribution, but I really wanted to teach hands on, like the way I was mentored by this Jewish gentleman. However, problem, I left in the beginning of my senior year at Oberlin to take a job with the Richmond Symphony as assistant conductor. So I do not have a teaching degree. You'd be surprised. All those places you rattled off, Lee, it doesn't matter. L.A. Philharmonic, Cleveland Orchestra, greatest orchestras in the world, New York City Opera, Houston Grand Opera, means nothing. If I want to teach at the Wake Tech University, 
So I've had to do other things, adjunct professor at William Peace University. I, I, I mentor dozens of young people. That's the way I can give back what was given to me. And I am grateful that the University of North Carolina at Greensboro has offered me an honorary doctorate. And I'll go through that process in December. But someone told me in academia, it still doesn't mean you're going to be hired. And I'm frankly, you know, as you can tell, I'm on fire about giving back to my community. So what else can I do if I can't teach? This year, I'm going to be going to all the historically black colleges and universities in North Carolina and talking and lecturing and teaching and conducting for free. I don't want dime one for the privilege of helping young black and white performers. So this is going to be the fifth act of my life. Yes, still conducting, still composing. But since they won't let me teach, I'll go out there and do it part-time because this has got to be, you know, Leonard Bernstein said, and I can't find it in the Bible, that after 50, your life belongs to God. What does that mean to me? It means helping other people. To me, life makes no sense. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've enjoyed Christmas. I've enjoyed birthdays. I like Gone with the Wind. Okay, I've done that, been there. I don't want to say I've had it with those things. But if you're not helping other people, it should be a balance. There should be a balance. There should be a balance. And that's what I'm devoting myself to or whatever time I'm left with. Wow. Thank you so much. I am. Um, well, I'm looking at the clock and I feel like we could talk all day. <laughs> I feel like there are like, like 10,000 things that we haven't even hit on. So we'll have to have you back again um, sometime later this year, perhaps around the time your memoir comes out. Okay. Yes. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Maestro William Henry Curry, it was an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so, so much. And uh, we will be back with Pure Black Joy right after this break. And we are back. Thank you so much to Maestro Curry for being with us. Yay! Yay! And now it is time for our favorite segment of the show. Are you ready, Paige? Ready. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. Peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. Peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, PB and J time. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna owe the composer of that so many royalties, but we really are. Oh, oh well. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, it is time for pure black joy. This is the segment where we talk about all of the black people, places, things, ideas, music, art that is making us happy this week. Um, who would like to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. So my pure black joy this week is that uh, uh, I think within the past week or either coming up. No, I think it was in the past week that this happened. Uh, President Biden 
presented the International Association of Blacks in Dance with the National Medal of Arts. Oh, yes, I I love this organization. Fun fact, one of my first things that I got to do as like an arts administrator was being a production assistant for their conference in DC. Um, oh. Because so many members and stuff, you know, have connection to the Howard Dance Department. And actually the current um, president, Denise Saunders Thompson, shout out to her, um, was one of my professors while I was at oh. Howard. Oh, wow. wow. Look at okay. that. Yeah, that's why. And, you know, I I heard about this because I saw a picture on my timeline of her being handed a medal by President Biden. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so, also, like, so amazing. I've learned so much from, from her and the way she moved and, like, attending the IABP conference was just such a highlight of my time. And I'll never forget just the incredible Black dancers and Black dance history and just the way that they're supporting the field is incredible. And from young folks to uplifting the folks who have been here and, you know, to, and need to, you know, receive their flowers and continue to be resourced. So just shout out to them. They're doing incredible work. I was like, this is so deserved. This is so, so deserved. Um, y'all got it right with that award. So shout out <laughs> to the National Association of Blacks and Dance. Absolutely. All right. That's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I was so excited. I was like, I know somebody who has a presidential medal of arts. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's incredible. Shout out uh, to them because that's just, that's dope. Yeah. 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 Well, I can go next because I have a couple of quick ones um, from the great state of Minnesota. Um, first and foremost, I want to shout out, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing your last name correctly, um, but Stephanie Barrage or Burridge, um, who has been um, announced by Governor Tim Walls as Minnesota's first chief equity officer um which is amazing <laughs> <laughs> um she's set to move from her current position as deputy commissioner of the department of education um and um she also led a month-long effort called mind body and soul which was a gathering of hundreds of black leaders around the state to seek advice about the biggest issues that communities face and about funding areas that can improve quality of life for minnesotans of color so uh, miss miss stephanie has been working for black folks here in minnesota where there are just some of the wildest disparities <laughs> in education and um you know economic um like it's just i i was kind of surprised when i first moved here to learn that like minnesota and wisconsin kind of fight for last place every year when it comes <laughs> to those kinds of of disparities um and it's just it's lovely that the state is taking these things seriously and is creating a statewide office to look at these equity issues and will wonders never cease. So that's super exciting. So I just want to shout out Stephanie Barrage, but that is going to be a hard job. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I wish you all the luck and support in the world because Lord knows we need you. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then also from here in the great state of Minnesota, uh, I just want to shout out Sean McKenzie of Cafe Cafe Series, who is um, a pastry chef um, and has just been announced as a finalist for the James Beard Awards, the Oscars of food. So, I'm trying to go to Cafe Series and get some pastries. Because <laughs> <laughs> they sound delicious. Where is it? I don't know. Um, let me look. Yeah, we should we should tell people. Oh, and so Rustica can... Bakery also. Oh, but apparently she used to um run the pastry programs at Isaac Becker's restaurants of Barla Grassa and 112 Eatery and Birch. Mm-hmm. And oh, Barla, I was Barla just at just... La Grassa. Mm-hmm. Like literally when I was there this past week. It's delicious. It's so good. So oh my good. God. <laughs> no, I don't know. It doesn't say, but we'll find out. Yeah, um, we'll find out. But like I have been eating too much. They just opened a bakery at that Cooks of Crocus Hill on the way. Well, I guess it's been open for a couple of years, but pandemic. Um, (laughs) But I walk past it every day. And actually, the head chef there, who I think just left, Diane Mua, she's a a Hmong woman. Um, Those baked goods are so good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're dangerous. What? <laughs> why would you? Why, what? <laughs> I had to walk to past that every day when I was going to the office. Do you know the self-restraint <laughs> that I had to develop? And the way they leave those doors open, the windows open I, so you can smell it. Ugh. I don't have the restraint that you have. And <laughs> like a couple of months ago, I just, you know, did not... Um, I did not do my, my fitness homework that my trainer assigned me and said, I just sat on the couch and ate cookies mm-hmm. and he was like, oh, so you have cookie energy. I guess we're going to do some cookie squats, <laughs> some cookie deadlifts, and some cookie bicep curls. And I'm just like, I think about him every time I walk past there, but I, I don't have the restraint that you have. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, shout out to to Stephanie and Sean. Um, and good luck with everything. I hope you win your James. Yeah, me Beard too. Award. That's awesome. Lee. Well, um, everybody who's listening might remember last year. I guess it was um, maybe last February. We all went on a little field trip together to see the anonymous lover at Minnesota Opera, which of course was written by Joseph Ballone, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a French Caribbean composer who lived uh, about 200 years ago or so. Um, And it was a really wonderful, lovely, colorful, beautiful, well-sung piece. Um, The Chevalier is now getting a couple of his flowers. Um, A new movie is out called Chevalier. Um, It actually comes out April 21st, but it's already had its premiere and the reviews are out and you should take a look at that, but it chronicles his life and it stars an actor named Kelvin Harrison Jr. who you may recognize from some other recent films, including Cyrano, um, 
uh, what was the other one? Uh, the Trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, and a while back, he was also in Mudbound, Birth of a Nation. So he's been around for a while, but I feel like this has been a, a really good breakthrough. And he was also B.B. King in the Elvis movie, if you caught that. Oh, okay. um, and the, you know, I'm excited to see it. This is clearly right up my alley. But the thing that really got me is in the trailer, one part comes where he's not wearing one of his power, powdered wigs. And instead, he's got cornrows and he, you know, has his um, saber out because he was a world class fencer. And I was like, oh, this might be a very different movie than I'm thinking it is. So I'm looking forward to seeing it and, you know, discussing it with folks and we'll encourage others out there to go see it. Because as my dad used to say, if we do not see movies about black people, they may not keep making them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I look forward to your movie review. Absolutely. And Rocky, yes. this is nonfiction. So you also can see the movie. Well, I mean, it's based on, it's not like a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of The Score. I want to thank both of you for being here with me. Um, want to thank Maestro Curry for joining us and thank all of you out there for listening and being a part of our little community. Um, as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to find podcasts. Five stars, please. And <laughs> words. Um, if you want to reach out, uh, the score at mnopera.org is our email address. Um, and of course, as always, tell your friends about us because we're fun. And I think that's it. Any words of wisdom? Mm, it's Trans Visibility Days. Um, help a trans person do something joyful. Send mm. somebody. Send somebody twenty dollars. Oh, okay. <laughs> Action. 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 Buy a trans Action. person lunch today. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And everybody, let loose, come on, let loose. Sorry, that song's been in my head for like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get away from it. I'm not All right. <laughs> um, that's it. And... Yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And we have a very exciting show coming up in a couple of weeks. Should I spoil who the guest is? Or, or remind who the guest is? <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about them too. Super excited. Yeah. 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 yeah we will, hopefully we, we will have the luminous Julia Bullock. Oh, yeah. I really am excited about that. Yeah, Yay! right? Yeah. <laughs> Nerds. Anyway. <laughs> we will see you then in two weeks. And until then, be easy, everybody. Bye. Bye.